spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. All right, everybody. Welcome to episode 206 of the Archaeology Show. Hello. So I feel like garbage. (laughs) Yeah, you're pretty sick right now. And I'm getting over a cold. Yeah, still. so I kind of caught a little bit of your stuff, and I can't make it through an entire recording without just like yeah. coughing my brains out. Yeah, we had a whole episode ready to record. Yeah, but we're gonna postpone that. Yeah, so instead of doing that, we are actually gonna talk just briefly about an article that someone who's been on this show actually linked to us in our members only Slack team for the Architect Show, and it's Paul. Zimmerman. Yeah. He's co-host of the Archaeotech podcast with me. Yeah, he's been on our show before talking about some of the work that he's done over at the Lagash site in Iraq. And he was, you know, recently there. And, you know, we always talk about news articles and he actually sent this link to us. It's in CNN.com. It's called Archaeologists Find 5,000-Year-Old Tavern, Including Food Remains, in Iraq. And we're just reading through it. It's really cool. It's all about the work that he was doing on his project. And lo and behold, there's a picture of our buddy Paul, like right in the middle of the article, doing the work that he was doing there, which is some kind of, I don't even know what that is. (laughs) He's pushing a magnetometry rig. There you go. Yeah. 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 on episode 191 of the Archaeotech podcast, we talked all about doing magnetometry in Lagash with Paul. Uh-huh. We're going to link to this article, so you can take a look at that article. You can see Paul in action with all of his coworkers and and colleagues out there. Mm-hmm. But also, we are because again, I can't. I I've edited already several times <laughs> out my coughing. So. Poor thing. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to play right now the episode of Archaeotech podcast, episode 191, as I mentioned, from just last fall. Uh huh. Of Paul talking about doing the magnetometry survey. Yeah. And this is not the first time that we've talked to them, like we said. So we have a past episode for anybody who might be new and hasn't heard it before. We'll link to that past episode as well so that you can go listen to Paul and several of his colleagues talking about the different work that they were doing there last field season. So yeah. between this show and the Architect podcast, we've talked about Lagash and some of Paul's work over there a number of times. We in have. fact, yeah. he brought on somebody who was part of the German team there named Marco yeah. just a few episodes ago. So yeah. we'll probably try to link to that too. So if you're interested in archaeology in Iraq and this really old uh, site called Lagash, which yep. is the former name of the town, it's got a new name and I can't remember what the new name is in Iraq, mm-hmm. but they call it something else now. Yep. But he's been working out there for a few seasons now and is more than likely going back too. Yeah, they're so. doing some really cool work. So we thought this was a perfect opportunity to give your voice a break. Yep. And uh, let you learn some about what Paul is doing with the Lagash team out in Iraq. All right. I'm going to finish this cough drop and then maybe take a nap. Here <laughs> is episode 191 of the Archaeotech podcast. We'll see you guys next week. Bye. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech podcast, episode 191. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we catch up with Paul after his two months doing fieldwork in Iraq. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everyone. Paul, how's it going, man? It feels like it's been forever. 
Well, it has been forever. I mean, I've been, <laughs> what, traveling around the world, around the Middle East, uh, oh, about half the last year. I mean, I feel like I'm the world's worst uh, co-host right now because I'm never, <laughs> ever, ever around. But I'm back now. I've been back for just over a week from Iraq this time again and uh, mm-hmm. doing fine. It was a good trip. How have you been, Chris? Uh, I've been doing good. And I, and I have to argue with uh, you being the world's worst co-host because you're out there just building content. That's what you're doing. So, you know, uh, I'm just uh, over here like reading thanks, news articles, nice but you're, you're you're doing archaeology and, and building content. So there you go. <laughs> we'll take it. Uh, <laughs> we're doing well. We're in uh, North Carolina. And as we are the end of the year, the last three years, we spent it over here because my wife's family is from Charlotte. So we spend that time. We spend the holidays out mm-hmm. here and then. We're headed back over the uh, West Coast and Southwest for the start of the new year. So that should be fun. And yeah, we're just enjoying life. I don't know. Did I, had I bought this new RV before you left? I don't know. But we, we swapped out our old RV and bought a new one. So I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, yeah. The last time, uh, well, maybe it was not the last time, but sometime this summer when we uh, actually recorded together, uh, yeah. <laughs> you'd mentioned that. How's it going with it? You liking it? It's going great. Yeah, it's really, it's really awesome. It's, it's a, a little, it's a few inches shorter, but it's bigger inside because the slides go out further. It's, it's just, it's got so many modern amenities, whereas the older one just did not. It was still hanging on to some old tech. And this is a 2022. And not only is it a 2022, but they also, you know, put in some, just put in some, some more conveniences that we like and that we were wanting to do to the old one. So, you know, rather than upgrade all the systems on the old one, we just bought one with upgrades already installed. <laughs> so there you go. So how um, many upgrades have you done to the new one so far? Any? Uh, yes. So we put some, we put some LED lights underneath. I know, uh, we put some LED lights underneath, which actually not only just like looks cool, but also it actually helps with critters in the last RV. We had mice inside occasionally at certain campgrounds cause they just find little holes and they get up inside and you put these, um, LED lights that can kind of glow and maybe even change colors a little bit overnight. And it, you know, it looks neat underneath the RV. I'm not going to deny that, but also that light is, is, is critter deterrent. So that's really the primary reason behind that. But then we also had our lithium batteries from the old RV. We took those and we installed those just uh, last week and took out the six lead acid batteries oh. in and put in our six lithium. So that's good. And then we're having mm-hmm. th- this RV actually came with 600 watts of solar on the roof and we're having another 800 watts installed on our way back to Arizona. And there's an install place in Alabama that we're going to swing by and they're going to put that in. So, after that, I think we'll be done for a little while because we just wanted to get our solar and our batteries back up to where they were before so we can do some good boondocking and then mm-hmm. go from there. Because, yeah, we're spending almost two months off grid for the most part in January and February with with some minor exceptions and some short park stays. But, yeah, we're going to be in middle of nowhere, Arizona for weeks on in January. We're spending February in Mexico at a no services campground right on the Baja Peninsula, right at the north end of it uh, on the water. So but there's no services there whatsoever. So we're totally off grid <laughs> in that little campground. <laughs> so yeah, it should be a uh, should be interesting to say the least. Well, sounds like fun. I mean, congratulations yeah. on this. Uh, I was really wondering what you were doing about power because I knew you've spent so much time and effort, oh my and thought and care yeah. and money on yeah. beefing up the power on the old one. I was kind of you're, you're just abandoning all that. No, I guess I not. know. You brought some of it I over. know. 
Yeah, we did bring some of it over, and it did feel hard to to do all that because we just did some of that back in April. But you know, like with all things, we hadn't really intended to buy this RV at the time we did. We had been looking at upgrading, but it's uh, I don't know. In the end, it's a better choice because now we can upgrade our vehicle as well because this is a diesel RV with a ten thousand pound towing capacity, mm-hmm. whereas the other one was gas with a five thousand pound. So now we can upgrade that and get places that we can't go with our little car once we get something that's a little more robust. So, yeah, I was astounded that that old one was gas. <laughs> I was just yeah. really floored by yeah. that when I learned it. I know it was shocking. Uh, it did, it did all right, but yeah, this one just gets way better fuel efficiency uh, on the diesel, even though diesel, I bought a diesel right as gas mm-hmm. prices dropped through the floor and diesel basically stayed the same, if not went up. So that's awesome. But either way, we're getting way better gas mileage and more, more distance out of a tank than the old one. So I'll take it. But <laughs> yeah, it's between gas and diesel. <laughs> When I was in Saudi this summer, between the first rotation and the second rotation, we returned all the rental cars that we had uh, and got new ones. Uh, so we switched out from having a variety of different 4x4 SUVs that were all gas to having uh, a Hilux that was a brand new one. It was oh, diesel. Yeah. And we had to break in the engine, which was kind of fun doing that off-road. Mm-hmm. But the difference, and mind you, gas prices in Saudi aren't in any way comparable to what they are in the US, <laughs> but the difference there was the gas ones we were gassing up every day and a half for around 60 bucks. Mm-hmm. And we drove that brand new diesel for three days and then filled it up. I mean, it was on vapors at the end. We had like 11 kilometers left. <laughs> we filled it up for $11. Oh my God. <laughs> nice. Three nice. days for $11 versus day and a half for $60. Oh, it that's was just, pretty uh, good. It was shocking the difference. Yeah. Those Hiluxes are cool. That's a Toyota, right? And they don't sell it in this country. No, they don't sell them in the States. The closest is the Tacoma, but it's a slightly different bed, uh, frame. rather. Mm. Same basic idea. I yeah. Basically utilitarian pickup truck. Uh, right. But very nice. And just, just a few little details that made it extra cool, like the uh, air-conditioned seats. Oh yeah! Nice. Wow, that is exactly (laughs) what you want after uh, after a hard day of climbing up mountains in the desert. Yeah, the man. I've never had a field vehicle with air conditioned seats, but I have had field vehicles that had auto start, and I would crank up the air conditioning when we shut off in the morning, and then as soon as I could see the vehicle, I started cranking up that auto start just to just to get the vehicle started and get that air conditioning started. That's the Mm. best I've ever had. But air conditioned seats, I've never even I've seen like, you know, luxury vehicles and stuff with air conditioned seats, but I've never actually tried them. I was like, I understand how heated seats work, but the air conditioned seats, I guess it sounds like they work pretty well, don't they? Oh yeah. They're incredibly comfortable. That's really cool. So, all right. Well, you know what? This is going to be a a little bit shorter episode. We're just catching up with Paul. Why don't we take a break right there and then we'll come back and talk about your recent time in the Middle East and, and how all that went. So we'll do that on the other side of the break. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 191, where we reintroduce Paul as a co-host to this show, <laughs> at least until the spring field season. Yeah, otherwise known as <laughs> car talk, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. So let's let's actually get into this, Paul. Let's just this wasn't uh, a CRM project or anything like that, and you've done this project before. So let's just let's just first tell everybody where you were and, and what kind of stuff you were working on for the last couple of months. All right. Well, longtime listeners will know that as of last year, I switched out of my IT job and went back into field archaeology. And one of the first Mm -hmm. gigs I had was I went in November of 2021 to Iraq for a couple of weeks. And I've stuck on that project since. That was the Lagash Archaeological Project. And we had a spring season. So I was there for five weeks, I think, in the spring. And now we've had our third season uh, this fall. And I just got back. We're recording this in uh, early December. And I just got back uh, about a week and a half ago. Hmm. Uh, this one was interesting, though. The uh, The project is by the University of Pennsylvania. And Penn also has the permit to the site of Ur. So the Ur okay. project was also now getting off the, uh, off the ground. So I went first to Ur. And worked there for a month before just moving you know, up the street a little <laughs> bit to Lagash and working there for just over a month. So I got two projects under my belt in Iraq this last uh, this last stint. That's really awesome. So we, we've talked about Lagash quite a bit. What were they doing over in uh, Ur? So in Ur, the uh, the project in some ways is um, taking over from the old uh, Sunni Stony Brook project under uh, Elizabeth Stone and Paul Zemanski. We were working in one of their trenches, a deep trench that had been opened, I think, in 2015 originally, maybe 2017. Anyhow, it's been sitting there open and unfinished since 2019, which was last season. And then, you know, everything went to hell with uh, with COVID. So we dug in that until it was too deep to safely dig anymore. So we stopped that one. Uh, we were hoping to get down to Acadian levels, but I don't think we did. I have to talk to the field director to find out if we actually, you know, how deep we got. But I think that we only got into uh, or three levels. Um, we also opened mm. up a couple new trenches on a small tell that sits uh, a low tell that sits a little bit to the east of the main mound of Ur, and um, so we're looking at uh, at architecture in both those trenches. And then in the trench that I was in, we were also looking primarily for architecture, but because we were down so deep and by down so deep, I mean, we were eight meters deep at the end of this project. Wow. We had stepped it in so many times that it was a very small area. So (laughs) the architecture we found was part of a wall. (laughs) Uh, We couldn't tell anything about floor plan. There was also along under the same permit, there's a German team that was working on for lack of a better term, a villa, a very large house out on the outskirts of the tell itself of the Or three town, but still within the city mm-hmm. walls. And they found some very interesting things and they were doing an expansive excavation so they could actually see the entire floor plan of the building and see its various changes over, uh, over time of that house. You know, so it was uh, it was a variety of different things. It was mostly just to tie up some loose ends, though, from uh, from the previous project, and to get this new permit, this new project from Penn uh, up and running. 
I'm curious in a place like Iraq, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but these projects, they're, they're academic projects. People are over there, you know, doing research, but what happens when all that's done and the buildings are exposed? Uh, if there, if there are buildings or, or something like that, it's not just artifact collection, you know, that you can, you know, there's no danger or anything there, but if buildings are exposed and you're, you're like got this whole thing opened up, you see pictures like that all the time from Middle Eastern excavations. But what happens mm-hmm. after that is, is some local municipality forced to essentially take care of that now? Or does it get reburied or does, you know, some national museum take care of it? Or do you have to have all that in place before you even decide to do that? You have to have who's going to be the custodian of this once we're done. No, it's not formalized, but there is a general sense of best practices and we're trying to adhere to them. So the uh, we weren't able to adhere to them in the 2019 project because there was the expectation that they'd be back the following year and uh, be able to continue mm-hmm. working in those trenches. We decommissioned the, a number of trenches at the end of this season. So the one that I was working in, that eight meter deep one, we decommissioned as well as a couple others that had been left open from the previous project. And in even the one that I don't think they're finished with it, I should talk to the excavators who are working on it, but even that villa was covered at the end. So what we did is we put down some um, biofabric on top of the Mm -hmm. extant walls and then backfilled um, in order to protect what's available, what's remaining of the walls. And that's what we need to do. We need to do that for preservation of the archaeology, especially when you're digging mud brick the elements will degrade the uh, the material, right? So you leave something mm-hmm. out for a few years and it dissolves. Uh, so we didn't want right. that to happen. It's a little different at Ur where a lot of the architecture is baked brick. And so, but we still have to care for it. And it's sitting on top. Sometimes it's pedestaled. Sometimes it's built on top of pre-existing mud brick walls. So, you know, we want to shore it up and protect it in a way that would keep it from crumbling as much as possible, but would also make it that if somebody were to re-excavate this 50 years from now, they'd get mm-hmm. down, they'd hit the plastic layer, and they'd know exactly where we'd gotten to. Nice. And this is a little different. We um, With Lagash, we had a similar set of uh, issues, but Lagash, we have no baked brick at all. It's all entirely mud mm. brick. And so we covered and with plastic and with soil and sandbags at the end of last season in the spring, uh, our trenches that we'd opened. And the one that was covered the best was preserved very nicely. A couple others that we didn't have enough soil on, the tarps that we'd put down there were already shredded in just a few months. <laughs> uh, you know, between the sun wow. and the wind and the elements, uh, it just tore apart those tarps. And, you know, they, so they'd had some moderate damage. Uh, I wouldn't say significant, but it, had it been a year between the projects, it probably would have been significant. So at the end of the Lagash project, what we did is we went and put two layers of plastic down, different kinds of plastic, uh, clear plastic first, and then uh, then tarps on top of it, and also use sandbags to shore things up and mm-hmm. soil on top of that. And you know, hopefully that'll preserve it because Lagash is, uh, this last year was a two season year, but that was only because we couldn't work there because of COVID. It was, the project was open in 2019. So we wanted to, you know, make up for some lost time, but going forward, it's okay. going to be a one season a year project. So we won't be back excavating those same trenches until October probably of 2023. Uh, and we mm. want to make sure that we don't have too much damage to the architecture that we've left in place. Right, right. 
Okay. Well, let's talk uh, a little bit about this field season. So did you, I can't remember leading up to this, but were any, you know, just focusing on the fact that this is the Archaeotech podcast, we could go into all kinds of stuff, but trying to stay on brand here, mm-hmm. were any new technologies or devices or anything like that introduced in this uh, fall field season? Uh, no new technologies, uh, and I'm going to be talking about Lagash almost exclusively from here on out, even though yeah. Ur is a phenomenal site. <laughs> Lagash <laughs> is the one that, I, that that is a project that I'm more closely tied to. No new technologies, but a new-to-me technology, and that is magnetometry. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that a little oh, yeah. bit in the, um, in the summer, early fall, uh, because I'd done some training in order to come up with a plan for how we're going to do the magnetometry. Now, magnetometry was done on the project in 2019, but we have a new setup, new uh, gear, and a new person doing it, that person being me. So mm-hmm. we went out there into the field with this new equipment, and then I got to deploy it on a survey that I designed and integrate it with the pre-existing magnetometry data. Okay. All right. And I want to talk about that in the third segment and what, what your, you know, how that worked out compared to the previous results and the previous magnetometry data. But uh, so along those lines, have you made any adjustments? I'm just curious because people thinking about projects like this, especially projects in, you know, far off areas where you may not have the access to things like you would maybe say, you know, at your, in your home state, if you're in this country or even another country at a, at a bigger city, uh, maybe you don't have access to certain things, but your photo management and all that stuff. Have you made any adjustments to those workflows that uh, benefited you guys to in this project as far as just like overall data management goes? Yeah, we didn't actually have to do any major changes this time because, you know, it's only been a few months since the previous season. Uh, so we had a good <laughs> yeah. sense of what worked and what didn't. Um, you know, there were some tweaks to how we do things, but but no major mm-hmm. revampings. But like I said, I had the magnetometry that I had to integrate with previous magnetometry, which was done by somebody else using a different system. And uh, we completed the surface survey that I designed and had spoken about last time we got 60% of the site covered in the spring and we finished the remaining 40% this last season. So now I have to process the data. Uh, But from my point of view, it was very similar. The one thing is since you're mentioning, you know, being stateside or not being stateside, (laughs) I had last time purchased a, a FLIR boson thermal imaging camera to attach to our drone uh, to get some drone aerial thermal photographs. And I mm-hmm. had a lot of trouble with it uh, in the spring because the the gimbal assembly wasn't balanced properly for that tiny camera. Mm. So I made this wonky sort of counterbalance with a, with some wire that I found and I glued it onto <laughs> and a, and a double A <laughs> battery <laughs> that offset the weight <laughs> properly. And it was really ugly and yeah. it was twitchy and it didn't work very well. And the, um, and the gimbal assembly is controlled by a regular radio control, like you might have for a radio control car or radio control airplane, mm-hmm. uh, in order to make it look the direction that we wanted. The direction that we wanted is straight down, of course. The radio in that would interfere with the radio for controlling the drone. So it would get up 20, 30 meters and then lose connection and the drone would force land. <laughs> So I redesigned the gimbal assembly, 3D printed some parts to make the balance better. Uh, I had that all working. I recalibrated everything. It was all set to go. And I got out in the field. I did one flight, still had the problem with the radio interference. 
decided I was going to try a different uh, a different setup. Got it so that it wouldn't interfere as badly, and then went to fly it, and I and the radio controller wouldn't work anymore. Oh my god! <laughs> the power on it had burnt out. So I googling, yeah. googling, googling. I find that this is a common problem with this particular one that we purchased. That uh, <laughs> it burns out, and the solution is really simple. All you have to do is find a voltage controller and solder it in. Oh yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, a voltage regulator is not something that I was going to find, you know, stuck on a farm with no permission to go anywhere except for the site. Uh, yeah. You know, um, yeah, it just was. Well, Amazon so doesn't deliver that. I ended there? up having to forego that. No, no, you, you, it's a little surprising, <laughs> but uh, their drones don't reach there yet. Uh, yeah, so I ended up having to reconfigure that so that I could basically fix that that camera facing straight down all the time without the use of the uh of the remote controller and i got that to work mm. and i started to get some uh some results at the end but i ran out of time so i was hoping to leave all that equipment in the field and it said it's all in my basement and i've got another round of soldering and programming and uh and 3d printing and yep. i'm going to pretend that i hate doing this <laughs> right exactly all right well i really want to talk about the magnetometry stuff because that's just I, to be honest it's not something you do very often especially in crm archaeology and, and stuff like that that i'm more familiar with so i want to mm. talk about that a lot more and we'll do that on the other side of the break back in a minute The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 191. And we're catching up with Paul after his uh, couple months of field work over in the Middle East, in Iraq more specifically. And Paul, you mentioned a few times, we talked about it before you went, that you, you took some magnetometry training. And I'm really interested in this because I haven't used a magnetometer for 12 years since I was in grad school, right? So I'm sure the... Mm -hmm. Well, the principle hasn't really changed, obviously, but I'm sure the technology has changed for, you know, how all this works. And you mentioned having to process the results and all that, and we'll talk about that. But I'm curious as to how you think your um, your survey methodology came out. I remember seeing the magnetometer has um, different, like, stabilizing poles and stuff like that, right? And, and they make these little holes. So I remember seeing a picture you put on Twitter of like the grid of holes, like from a drone shot <laughs> from doing the magnetometry <laughs> survey, which was kind of cool. The, those holes, those holes are my footprints. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. That whole pinstriping okay. video image is uh, the two tracks are the, uh, the wheels on the cart for the magnetometer. Ah. And those holes in the middle are my footprints. So basically what I had done is I divided up our site into 45 meter square grid. Mm -hmm. And I positioned it so that it would line up with our trenches in a way that meant that I had as many grid squares as possible without having to, you know, work around our, our existing trenches. And the reason why I did 45 meters, and I mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again because I think it's worthwhile to, for people to hear, is that uh, we had three sensors on our cart, 
So it's a one meter wide cart and there's a sensor each 50 centimeters. So one on the left, one in the middle, one on the right, each of them 50 centimeters from the next. It turns out that on a zigzag Bustrophodon style pattern going across these grid units, that the width of the grid unit has to be evenly divisible by the number of sensors that you have. Okay. So I have three sensors. I wanted to do a 50 meter grid, but I can't do that. So my options were 45, 48, or well, 60 would be the next sensible one up. 48 doesn't make yeah. a lot of sense because if I go to a five, se- a five uh, sensor grid, 48 isn't evenly divisible by five. 45 worked and 60 would work. And I went with 45 because I have 50 meter tapes. <laughs> I don't have to lug along 100 meter tapes or something else to, uh, to do it. So nice. it was limited by that. It doesn't really matter a whole lot, but that's why I went with 45 meter grid, uh, which is yeah. kind of weird sounding, but it makes sense once it's explained. And I'm going to put another plug in on my GitHub page. I wrote a little script that anybody can download and look at that will do those calculations for you. It'll tell you, you know, what your center line should be, what your first and last sensor should be. If you input the width of the grid and the number of sensors and the width of the, uh, the cart that you're using, uh, it'll calculate all that for you so you can help plan. Okay. So, yeah, so I would just choose a grid unit. And then with the total station, we would lay out the corners of the grid and I would lay the mm-hmm. tapes out a baseline uh, east to west on the south, and another one east to west on the north. And then the way that I was taught, I mean, I've done GPR magnetometry where you pull a rope or a um, or a chain or a tape north-south from the baseline to the end line, and then you follow that to get, you know to guide you to keep you going straight. Mm-hmm. And then you know if you're using a system that has a trigger that you have to press manually, you press it every one meter or every whatever the interval is. Okay. The system that we had had an odometer on the cart, so I didn't have to worry about pressing a trigger. The uh, The odometer would do that automatically. But I did still have to worry about going straight. So instead of drawing the that chain north-south as a guide, what I was taught, and this worked beautifully, is I could place a traffic cone hmm center line of the target on the on the uh, north line and then one on the south line and each time you know so i'd aim at the traffic cone and when i got there i would move the traffic cone a couple meters over and turn around and come back and move that traffic cone a couple meters over and i would just do that (laughs) back and forth moving the traffic cone uh and it worked great for me because what this meant was normally you have to have two or more people for a survey like this because you've got people that are moving the chains. Mm. Uh, aside from laying out the grid units, the corners, I where I needed somebody running the total station and I was running the, the, the uh, pole and staking, I was doing it all by myself. I mean, there were a couple of times that people helped me yeah. and I certainly, it, it sped things up a little when they helped me, but it was not necessary to do this work. And so That's cool. that made it a one person job for the most part. And we got yeah. toward the end, we got a, uh, uh, DGPS uh, with the Trimble corrections. And that meant that I could actually lay out those corners in a couple areas. So we did some tests around the site uh, all by myself. Took longer hmm. than it does with the total station, but uh, you know, it was then entirely start to finish a one-person job. Yeah. Nice. Well, that, and that's really cool when you've got a, obviously a limited crew and you can't just like call somebody and say, Hey, can you come help with this? So, you know, making that, even if it takes you just a little bit longer, it's still way more efficient in this scenario. So, you know, I'm also wondering, 
So you mentioned that they did a, a magnetometry survey back in 2019 on this area. Mm-hmm. Did you survey the exact same area on Lagash? No, I planned mine so that, I mean, the grid that I drew up covers the entire site, including the areas that had previously been surveyed. But I oh, planned okay. it so that I would do ones that were complementary, that, that hadn't overlapped with the other ones. It turned out that that 2019 stuff had mm-hmm. a significant spatial error. Oh, really? And I found the error. Yeah. And I corrected it. I corrected all that 2019 data. And once I did so, it uh, it lined up beautifully with not just my data because, you know, then mm-hmm. I'm using my as a reference and, uh, and well, who's to say which is more accurate, but it also lined <laughs> up with uh, what we were finding in our excavations, which we weren't mm-hmm. finding in the spring, which was baffling to us why we had this beautiful magnetometry that looked like we could see features. Uh, but then when we dug, they weren't showing up in the same place. Well, sure. it turns out because they were 20 meters over. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so did they end up, I mean, even though they had this spatial error, did they find anything in 2019 of any significance? Uh, they did. And there is a uh, an article that's making the rounds right now about uh, work done at Lagash that relies in part on this really badly botched <laughs> magnetometry mm-hmm. from 2019. Yeah. Anyhow, I rectified it. And so basically doubled the footprint of what we had here. Okay. You know, I, the okay. 2019 data plus mine and things line up beautifully. I mean, so, you know, streets and walls that you can see in the 2019 mm. data go off the edge of the 2019 data and right into my 2022 data <laughs> perfectly in alignment. And then there's a trench and you can see where the street is yeah. in the trench. We excavated it and we found it in excavation. So um, it's nice for our purposes. It's really proving to be incredibly valuable for predicting what's what we're going to find subsurface. Yeah, actually, I'll tell you a little example. So we had a student, yeah. an undergrad that was on the project, and she had very little field experience. She would actually, I, and this is something else I'm going to want to talk about at some point, is uh, my program that I've hinted at for a long, long time about the, my total station program. I finally got it up and running mm-hmm. Well enough that uh, I dog fooded it for both these projects for Ur and for Lagash, and made a whole bunch of little like interface tweaks as I went to make okay. it easier to use in the field. But um, I taught this undergrad how to use it, and she became our total station person. Nice. And so she would, you know, while I was training her one day, I was like, "Well, let's let's go. We're going to open uh, a trench in this area. So why don't you go?" with the the total station we'll have you and i was running the total station there because i was still uh i was still you know tweaking some of the interface things but i gave her the poll and again very little field experience i said find everything that you think is looks interesting on the surface here so if you see a bunch of pottery if you see a ring of something and tell me what you think it might be the rings are going to be drains the piles of pottery are just going to be positive and so she went and she tagged all these different areas she's like here's a uh, concentration of pottery here looks like a drain here mm-hmm. is some some dark soil that looks kind of ashy uh, and then we ran the magnetometry over it and what she picked out on the surface and what we found on the magnetometry were matched exactly it was nice. beautiful <laughs> you know? and then nice. when we excavated it matched even better so um yeah. you know we could find oh you found that that ashy bit guess what we found here we've got an oven <laughs> Well, that's really cool. Anytime you can get that kind of correlation, it's just, uh, you know, magical vindication of <laughs> everything you've been trying to do. And so I'm curious as well. It's been a long time since I saw magnetometry data. 
you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that, you know, you still have to process all the results, you know, and, and really figure out what you had going on, but out in the field, do you get, what, what kind of indication do you get just from the results you're getting in the field with, um, well, first off, can you tell anything as you're out there actually running the equipment or do you start maybe getting a hint at some stuff once you bring it back in and toss it all on the computer without like full processing, but maybe minimal processing? How much can you tell out there is what I'm kind of getting at. All right. So the, uh, the processing, the, um, I think these are conflating two different things. The survey that, that still needs processing is my, uh, my systematic surface collection. Ah, okay. That, uh, that I started before. That was the data that we have for the magnetometry were processed nightly in, oh, when we were in the field. And okay. actually, the, the data collection happens now with the system that we're using on, I'm holding it in front of me, a Panasonic TuffPad FZG1. So it's basically a Windows computer in a tablet form. Yeah. And the data collection software does not show you what, uh, and for this particular system, the census system, does not show you what you're seeing under the ground. But mm -hmm. as soon as you're done with any one of the units, you hit done and then just open up a different program and process the data right there. It takes just a second to import it. Oh, wow. To a median correction on it and then, uh, and then adjust the, um, the values that you're showing and boom, you could see it right there. So within minutes of me finishing a unit, I could look at the, at the data that I just collected. And so sometimes mm -hmm. we've done that. You know, there wasn't any real point for me doing that for the most part, but uh, there were a couple of days that we had visitors on site hmm. uh, and they saw me out there with Bessie. Bessie's what I'm calling the cart because it's black <laughs> and white and I'm plowing this field. It reminds me of a cow. Um, nice. <laughs> uh, I'm out there with Bessie and then I finish up and I can quickly process it as I'm walking back towards the visitors and I can show them exactly what I had just picked up uh, you know, wow. surface, you know, 15 minutes ago. That's really cool. So it's not real time, but it's uh, but it's close enough that for our purposes, uh, you know, we could definitely use it in the field and see the results right there. You know, maybe during break or something. Uh, the mm -hmm. only caveat to that is the software that we're using runs with a hardware dongle. So if I wanted to do that on any particular day, I'd have to remember to bring the hardware dongle with me. And, you know, the fear then is losing the dongle somewhere out in the field. Yeah. So okay. I don't know that I'd always recommend that, but uh, but it, it worked in those cases where I had to do so. Nice. All right. Well, I think that's good enough for now on this episode. We just wanted to have a quick catch up with you and see what was going on. Um, we do have a an interview coming up and, and with actually somebody you worked with out on one of these projects. And we've got uh, some more good episodes and some stuff planned. We're going to get back on track. We uh, got off track for a... <laughs> a few reasons a paul being gone and b we did the october uh shutdown on uh new new episodes and we've you know we've had some some you know times getting back in plus we moved the apn onto a completely different hosting service in the last couple of weeks that's been really fun so aside from all that i think we're we're oh, getting boy. back into it and yeah it's just been a lot so it's been a fall for sure and the apn turned eight on december 1st so we are now eight years old officially as a network which is pretty cool so anyway paul any uh any last parting thoughts on your on your Lagash fieldwork to to kind of sum up your time out there? So it was excellent. I'm glad I went. I'm glad to be part of this project. I can't wait to go back again next year. Uh, we have mm -hmm. a lot of interesting ideas that we're working on. Things are 
starting to gel in terms of how we understand the history of the site, what we understand about the topography, how we've matched up different data sets uh, between the, the soil cores and the thermal imaging and the excavation and the magnetometry and the aerial survey. Even you know, just like I was noticing doing the magnetometry that some of the gullies on the side of the, the mounds on the tell seem to follow the ancient roads subsurface, oh, which I yeah. guess makes sense to some extent. Um, but we didn't expect that. It's not everything. Not every gully follows a road, but it's common enough. And we didn't know that before. You know, We, we realized yeah. that as we were doing it. And that's one of the things that I really missed about doing the field work is that you know, we're there talking about this stuff, immersed in it with our colleagues day in and day out. And you get a bit of a feel for something and you, you know, chew the fat with them and mull some mm -hmm. ideas over and some of them end up in the circular bin, right? But some of them <laughs> actually seem to bear fruit. Some of them bear a little more looking into. Oh, that's the other thing yeah. about the magnetometry data. So the magnetometry data, we have distinct signatures that we can eyeball. Right, So I can look at something, I can tell you it's a wall, it's a mud brick wall. I can mm -hmm. look at something and tell you it's a kiln. I can look at something and tell you it's a street. Um, what I want to do is actually formalize that. And so we're starting conversations with somebody that can do a little bit of machine learning, a little bit of uh, computer vision uh -huh. to help define these patterns, the things that we're picking up intuitively, but then look at the difference in the levels and shapes and juxtapositions mm -hmm. of highs and lows to try to, to formalize and regularize that and then let the computers do it for us as maybe a first pass through to say, hey, this looks like it's a road. Hey, this looks cool. like it's a wall. Hey, this looks like it's a kiln. Hey, this looks like it's an oven. This looks like it's a drain. This, you know, and then maybe other features that we haven't yet been able to identify. So we're, you know, we're going to be exploring other post-processing sorts of techniques like that, that, uh, that I think will be pretty exciting. Okay, cool. Well, that is pretty exciting. Uh, definitely interested in hearing more about that. So, all right, Paul. Well, with that, I think uh, we'll go ahead and head out for this episode. And thanks for, thanks for coming back and, and bringing back all kinds of good information. And we will come back next time with some, some more great stuff. I think that episode's coming out right before Christmas. So uh, at least here in the United States. And if you're I don't know, celebrate Christmas. <laughs> if not, it comes out right before any other weekend. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And again, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. Take care, Chris. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at archpodnet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.